All right, 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. We started 2 Samuel a few weeks ago, and, and while 1 Samuel was kind of about lessons from the heart, 2 Samuel, it, it's the same book in a sense that they weren't separated originally. It was one author, one piece originally. So the lessons from the heart are still there, but now we're going to focus pretty much solely on David's heart. And we're going to see him being a man after God's heart. We're going to see what it means to have a heart after God. And so when we started the book in chapter 1, news of Saul's death arrived to David three days after he returned from or to the ruins of Ziglag. That is less than a week uh, since David started walking with the Lord again. But David knew he and his men couldn't stay in Ziglag. That was not where they were supposed to be. But the question is, where do they go from here? Yes, Saul may be dead. Israel is presently scattered because they have no king. People in the northern part of Israel have fled their homes. The Philistines have moved in. David knows God wants him to return to Israel, and so he knows him. He he wants him to do something. But the question is, where to go? And what's he supposed to do next when he gets there? Saul may be dead, and Israel may be in turmoil, but David's battles aren't over just yet. So chapter 2, we're going to look at this interesting thing that happens when David goes back home. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass after this, after the news comes of Saul's death, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up unto any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Hinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. David, here, he is going to return to Judah, but he doesn't know that's what the Lord wants him to do yet, and so he doesn't make any plans. He inquired of the Lord. It means to consult the Lord through prayer. And we know that David did this through Abiathar, the high priest, who had access to the Urim and the Thummim to discern God's will in a situation. And so he asked the question to the high priest, shall I go up unto the cities of Judah? And the Lord answers through the high priest saying, go up. David says, where? And he says, we'll go to Hebron. It's interesting. David says, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? I mean, does it matter? Do I not even go to Judah? That's my homeland, but maybe you don't want me to go there. I love here that David, he is seeking the Lord's will, even though it seems like a no-brainer in what he's supposed to do. Judah was still free of Philistine influence at that point. They had not come that far south, so it seemed obvious to go there first. But again, David doesn't presume anything. He wants to know where God wants him to go. And the Lord tells him to go to Hebron. Now, Hebron is one of the cities of refuge. Remember, that's one of the Levitical cities that if you got in trouble for doing something you shouldn't have been doing, that's where you would run to. You know, if you uh, ended up killing somebody, even though it wasn't on purpose, uh, I used to always famously say, if you're out playing rocks and sticks and you hit the guy too hard, then you run to the city of refuge. So this is an important city. In fact, it was probably the most important city in the tribe of Judah's lands. It's about 30 miles northeast of Ziklag, about 20 miles south of Jerusalem, so it's right there in the heart of Israel. And that's where the Lord tells me to go, and so the Bible tells us David went up there in obedience to the Lord. And notice, though, the author says, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. We see this all throughout since David took his extra wives that the author keeps mentioning, and he took them too. (laughs) It's like, you know, David's got some things right, but there's still some things there that don't belong. In fact, we're going to see every mention where David goes, they go with him. And it's almost like the author's saying there's trouble lurking in the future because of these decisions that David made. And there will be trouble that comes about in David's life because of his multi-marriage situation. But verse 3, we see that David, he goes up there, and verse 3 says, His men that were with him did David bring up, every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. They settled down, they made their homes in these suburbs, these cities around Hebron. Hebron was so important, it, it became a region rather than just a city because of its importance. And so you had all these little suburbs around Hebron where David's men, they, they make a home for themselves. It's interesting, David and his men thought that they'd made a home in Philistia because, well, we're not living in caves anymore. At least we have roofs over our head instead of stone. 
But you know, it's interesting, when they were in Philistia, they still weren't free. They were servants to the king of Philistia. They didn't have a choice of where they were to live. They had one city they were allowed to go into. And see, that's the crazy part when I'm out of God's will and in bondage to my own foolishness. Sometimes I can't even see I'm in bondage because my idea of freedom isn't really free. You know, I'm free. I get to do what I want. You know, I'm not, I'm not running from Saul anymore. Yeah, but you're serving a pagan king. Are you really free? I love what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34. He says, if you continue in my words, you are my disciples indeed, he says in 834. And then in 836, he says, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And the servant does not abide in the house forever, but the Son abides forever. And if you, the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Here they are in God's will once again, and it's where David and his men truly find freedom, able to choose where they settle with their families, with no more lies, no more disobedience, no more fear. And here's the truth of it. (laughs) God can do far better for me than I can do for myself. Do you believe that? He can do far better for me than I can ever do for myself. That's just one reason we should trust him. Proverbs has numerous warnings about not doing things our own way. Proverbs 14, 12 being the most famous, it says there is a way, there's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty extreme contrast there. There's a way that seems right, just, you know, pleasing to God or, or good for me. And, and it ends to death though. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's awful. It's the worst place you could go. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, of course, promises a different path if we trust the Lord. It says, trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Bring him into the account. Bring what he says into the account. Bring who he is into the account. And if you do that, he will direct your paths. He'll make your path straight. He'll guide your steps. God is very faithful. He keeps his promises. And so we see here that David and his men, following the Lord, they find true freedom, they find true homes. And God's not done being faithful. Remember, he made a promise to David, and now we're going to see it happen here in verse 4. Verse 4 of 2 Samuel 2, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. No big battle with Saul. It's just, boom, he's in the Lord's will, and it happens, right? He didn't have to do anything. He just needed to follow the Lord wherever the Lord would lead him, and God did it in his time. They anointed him to be king over Judah, and it's over. He's king, just like God promised. Now, the reason they anoint the kings, the word anoint means to set apart for special service. In other words, they're coming to David and saying, you're going to have a different role than the rest of us in our community. You're going to be our king. We're going to be your subjects. It's not The relationship we have with you is not going to be like the relationship we have with anyone else. This action of anointing is communicating that. And that action, it carries weight both ways. It carries the weight of David's new responsibility to be faithful in his position, to serve and lead the people in God's will. And it carries the weight for the people to be submitted to his rule, to be following the Lord as they follow their king. How interesting that David who believed he had no support in his homeland, who had left his homeland to join the Philistines, and who was willing to fight against his own people at one point. Look at what the Lord has done. Isn't that awesome? And what's so interesting about it is if we look at just weeks prior to this, where's David working for the Philistines? When all along this was right around the corner. I love that verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, which says we see through a glass a mirror, darkly, it says now, it's cloudy. In other words, have you, have you ever tried to, like, guys, you ever tried to shave when the mirror is still fogged up? Okay, I'm not the only crazy person that's ever attempted to do that. Yeah, it's not fun. You're trying to see, and you can barely see, and you're hoping you're getting it right, and a lot of the times it's just guesswork. And that's what Paul's saying here. You know, we, right now, we see through a mirror, and it's cloudy, and realize the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is he's talking about life filled with the Holy Spirit, <laughs> all right? Life filled with the Holy Spirit, we still see through a mirror that's a little bit cloudy. We don't have full understanding. 
when we're at our best, submitted to the Lord, we still don't know it all. We still don't have it all together. In other words, we don't see like God sees. And that means that things are very rarely truly as you think them to be. I tell you, you know, there have been so many things in my life that have come up where it's kind of like whack-a-mole. Sometimes life feels like whack-a-mole, right? And every once in a while, you got too many moles popping up for your whacker, right? And so there are those moments in life where you look around and it's just all these little guys are looking at you, and you're like, I, I can't handle this. I can't do this. And it's easy to look out in our own understanding. You're never going to forget this illustration. It's easy to look out in our own understanding and to become overwhelmed, right? What, what does the, the writer say? He says, when my heart is overwhelmed, what is his prayer? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the place where you see, not where I see. And so the problem is, is if we look out with even our understanding and at our best, filled with the Holy Spirit, we look out, we still don't see everything like God does. We still don't have all the information. And so because of that, I am not called to measure my decisions based on my understanding, based on my surveying the atmosphere around me and how many moles can I get. What's the most important moles to hit? That's not how I'm supposed to operate in my decision-making. I am called to measure my decisions based on God's character and God's commands in His Word, not my ability to read the situation. Because even filled with the Holy Spirit, at my best, God alone knows all the facts. And so, David, look at what God had done. Look at what the Lord was doing he should have trusted the Lord through the whole time, and then the whole debacle in Philistia would have never taken place. I'm glad he went to Philistia because it gives me hope, <laughs> because too often I'm in Philistia. Now, since David has been set apart to this special role as king now, it's time to get to work. And so the men of Judah inform David, saying that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. So David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead. The first news that David gets about his kingdom is that not everyone up north is on the run. There were some who remained courageous, and they did what they could. You, there's a starting point, David, if you want to turn the tide, if you want to fix this mess and, and find a starting place to turn the tide against the Philistines, there's, there's a group of people who, who didn't run. And so David sends messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, David's first task is he's got to pick up the broken pieces of his homeland. And that means he's going to have to forge ties with those who were loyal to Saul those that might be concerned that he would take retribution on those who were loyal to the man who hunted him down. And so immediately, David reaches out to the staunchest supporters of his enemy, of the one who was hunting for his life. These men of Jabesh Gilead who risked their lives to take Saul's body and the son, uh, Saul's son's bodies away from the Philistines and give them a proper burial. He sends messengers to them, and he says to them in this message, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that you have showed this kindness unto your Lord, Saul, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite this, you this kindness, because you have done this thing." The word here, kindness, used multiple times is that Hebrew word said. It's God's loyal love. It's the Old Testament equivalent of agape. He says, listen, you, you have shown this amazing loyal love to Saul, this devotion to your king. And he says, blessed be you for doing that. And my desire is that God would now show that same loyal love to you, that God would bless you. The word there, truth, where it says, now the Lord show kindness, his love, and truth unto you. The word truth here means his faithfulness. I love this because David makes it very clear to these folks who were staunch supporters of Saul that their love for Saul was a good thing and that he wants God to treat them the same way they treated Saul. And then David even goes a step further. He proves his genuineness by making them a promise. He says, and I also will 
requite you this kindness because you have done this thing. Requite means I'm going to do something to you, uh, similar that you've done to others. The word kindness is a different word that David uses than loyal love. It just means a good thing, a kind thing, a, a gracious thing. This really special thing you did for Saul and his sons in recovering their bodies, he says, I want to I do something for you. I want to repay that kindness. I love this because what David is basically saying to them is he goes, I'm going to be just as loyal to you as you were to Saul. He takes the first step. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to stand for you. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to serve you in the same way that you have served, faithfully served your king. And then David invites them to join his fight to reestablish their homeland. He says in verse 7, Therefore now, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Listen, Saul's house is dead. Our nation is scattered. I'm trying to pick up the pieces. The, king, the tribe of Judah has anointed me. The Philistines haven't gotten here yet. I want your help in turning the tide. Let your hand be strengthened means be resolved. I know you took a lot of resolve to go rescue Saul's bodies. You risk retribution from the Philistines, but it's not time to chill out. It's time to man up. He says it's time to be valiant means you need to become the new mighty men. You need to become the new mighty men, and I want you by my side. I'm going to take the Philistines on. I want you by my side so we can take back our homeland. I love David here because he realizes this is no time for division or for rebellion. He's communicating to them, listen, I am happy that you were loyal to Saul. I was never in rebellion against Saul. And so we are on the same team, and we will need each other for the fight ahead. So let's do it. Let's do it. I wish verse 8 didn't happen because I would have loved to have seen what would have happened if it didn't happen. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen how David, being the leader that he was, being the man after God's heart, how he reached out to those who were loyal to Saul, I would have loved to have seen what amazing things God would have done right after this. Sadly, though, we don't find out how the men of Jabesh-Gilead respond because before David can begin unifying the kingdom, opposition forms from what's left of Saul's family. Look at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, he took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin and over all Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, Abner is Saul's uncle or cousin. We're not sure what that word uncle is referring to. He was commander of the Israeli army. And so, while things were going well for David, someone fiercely opposed God's plan. And so, Abner, we don't, doesn't, the Bible doesn't explain to us how he survived the battle with the Philistines when Saul died. That normally would be considered a huge failure on his part, so I'm not sure why he's still considered someone of esteem, letting his king die. It's possible he wasn't at the battle, although that would be rare. However he survived, however he's still around, Abner is a man who is used to having power, and he was someone who actively participated in hunting David. And so Abner has no intention of throwing himself on David's mercy. And so he takes Saul's surviving son, the fourth son that had been left behind in Gibeah to govern when Saul and the other family members went to war, Ish-bosheth. And so with Israel routed at this point and so many people forsaking their homes in the north, Abner does not think it's safe to stay in Gibeah. And so he takes Saul's final son and they both flee to the other side of the Jordan River. In fact, they flee pretty much as far as you can go on the other side. Mahanaim is way to the east on the other side of the river. It's right on the edge of Israel's border with the country of Ammon by the Jabbok River. And so he takes them far away from the Philistine threat, and they don't just cower there while the Philistines move into Israeli homes. He gets ready to fight another day. Verse 9, he makes Ishbosheth king 
pardon me, king over Gilead and over all these other groups here. Gilead is the middle region that's east of the Jordan River where he's at right now. The Asherites is the tribe of Asher in the far north of Israel. Jezreel is a region where the rest of the northern tribes, uh, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun are. That's where the war was fought. These would be the tribes that would be mostly affected. These would be the tribes that all fled across the river. Ephraim and Benjamin would be the middle part of Israel. This would be the part that the Philistines were starting to move into. They also fled across the river. These are all the tribes, basically, that fled their homes from the Philistine victory. They would likely be on this other side of the Jordan River with the king, or with uh, the king's son, and Abner. And so when Abner makes Ishbosheth king there in Mahanaim, he pretty much, he becomes the king of all of Israel. I mean, yeah, Judah's and likely Simeon because Simeon's lands are inside the middle of Judah. They were loyal to David, but the majority of Israel is still following Saul's family's leadership at this point. And by doing this, instead of taking on the real enemy, the Philistines, the one who's invaded their lands and living in their homes, Abner's stubborn actions bring Israel into a civil war that will last for two years. It says here that Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign. Gives us an idea how old Saul was when he died. He, he's not a young man at that point in time. He was probably in his 60s, late 60s or early 70s. But Ishbosheth, it tells us up front, we'll learn about his reign, but he only reigned for two years. And it mentions here the only group that didn't go along with this was the house of Judah, the tribe of Judah. They said, no, we're going to follow David. It mentions here in verse 11 that David was king in Hebron over Judah for seven and a half years. The reason it says that David reigned there for seven and a half years is because David did not move his capital after he won the civil war. So after two years of fighting against Ishbosheth's, the other tribes, David, after he beat them he, and was crowned king by all of Israel, he did not move his capital. He didn't move it to Jerusalem until he conquered Jerusalem five and a half years later. And we'll read about that when we get to Second Samuel chapter 5. Now, obviously, you can't have two kings in Israel because Israel's not two nations, right? So this creates a problem. Ishbosheth and David clash. Now, David, what you're going to see in the course of this civil war, David never goes on the offensive against, he never goes to take land against Ishbosheth ever. Everything is going to be instigated by Abner. Abner's really the power here. Ishbosheth is just a name. We'll see that later on too. But Abner is the one who makes the aggressive moves. And so in verse 12, we see an initial aggressive move. It says, And Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, they went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Now, the servants here means these are officials. These are probably other military officials. So Abner takes a force to the city of Gibeon. Now, Gibeon has an interesting story. Gibeon is another Levitical city in the tribe of Benjamin. That's Saul's homeland. I mean, this is Saul territory. But the city of Gibeon in particular was not on good terms with Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, it gives us some tidbits into Saul's reign that 1 Samuel never told us. 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 and 2. David has been king for a while here in 2 Samuel 21. This is far after the Civil War. And it mentions in verse 1, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. That's a, a rough time. And so David inquired of the Lord. He said, is there something going on here? Is this us? Like, have we done something wrong? And the Lord answered, yeah, it's because of something Saul did. And for his bloody house, his bloodthirsty house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Isn't that interesting? He slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Interesting little story there. Now, you got to go all the way back to the book of Joshua to know the full part of that story. Remember when Israel first came into the promised land, they conquered Jericho, then they went and they lost against Ai, and then 
they went up the right way, defeated Ai, defeated Bethel, and Gibeon's the next target. Well, the people of Gibeon, they knew they were dead. And so they pretended to be travelers that coming through the promised land with made all their bread, you know, took the oldest bread, the moldy bread, whatever, like they, they weren't locals. And they went and met Joshua, and Joshua said, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, well, we've been traveling way up north, you know, up by Turkey. And we heard about what the Lord was doing in you guys, and so we came here. And Joshua's like, how do we know that you're not, you're not lying to us? You don't just, not just right around the corner. And like, well, look at us, man. Our clothes are worn out. Our, our bread's all moldy. I mean, we've been traveling a long time. And Joshua did not, the Bible says he did not seek the Lord. And so they, they said, hey, make a treaty with us. We, we want to serve the Lord with you. And so Joshua's excited about that. Yeah, yeah, you can serve the Lord with us. <laughs> well, then they come to the next city and Joshua gets ready to fight it. And the men of Gibeon are like, ah, you can't fight that. That's our city. And they're like, what? Why do you lie to us? And like, well, we knew we were dead men. Do whatever you want to do, but just don't kill us. We'll be your servants forever. Well, a lot of Israelites were pretty bitter about that because they were like, well, Lord, we're going to end up disobeying you. The Lord's, of course, we should have thought about that before he didn't seek me. So God tells me, he says, you need to honor your commitment to these guys, the treaty that you made. And so they did. And the Gibeonites proved that God told them, he said, well, you guys will be servants to the Levites. And they were very faithful. They were faithful to the Lord. Even though these were Amorites, they're not Israelites. They were faithful. Well, something happened when Saul became king. Many Israelis resented the Gibeonites because of that deception way back in their history and because, well, they're not Israelites. And so Saul, during his reign, he violated Israel's agreement with them and tried to wipe them out. Saul was thinking to himself, well, this will make people happy. This will make people like me. I'm going to wipe out this group. Now, it blows my mind. It's so sad that Saul would disobey God by not wiping out the Amalekites who were Israel's enemy, but he would be this zealous about wiping out a people God told them not to wipe out. But you know, as we study the life of Saul, what do we see? Saul was always moved by the optics. Always moved by the optics. How does this make me look? How does this make the people respond to me? Does this make them like me more, want to follow me more? Does this make them more loyal to me? Or does it make them upset with me? Everything was about the optics to him, not about what God said. And you know, my decisions should never be based on what, what gets people to do what I want them to do. My decisions should be based on what pleases the Lord, right? I, I'm in the 80s, late 80s Christian. It's when I got saved in 1988. And so I was 80s guy. I'm a, I was kind of a, a, a well, a metalhead when I was in the 80s, you know. I had the faded jeans, you know, and the, the jeans jacket, you know, that you wore every single day, and that was me. And so when I got saved, that type of music was, was not good. And so immediately I was like, I need something I can listen to that's not going to pour garbage into my head. And so one of the bands that immediately someone brought to my attention was the old classic Christian rock band Petra. And one of my favorite songs they sing is God Pleaser. Don't want to be a man pleaser, I want to be a God pleaser. There's a line in the song that says, I just want to do the things that please the Father's heart, to make my Father proud that I'm His child before I'm, I'm done. So the idea is I don't need, I don't want people to be the ones who pat me on the back. I want it to be my Father who says, well done. That's what I'm looking for. And so that was not Saul. He wanted the pat on the back. So Abner and Ishbosheth's officials, and as well as a small army, they likely come to Gibeon because I would imagine the city was not really sad when Saul died. These people who had survived his mass slaughter, they probably immediately committed to David. They probably had said, hey, you're king. We're good with that. Saul's trying to kill you too. We're, we're partners in crime. So we go for you. So in Abner's mind, he's thinking, this is Benjamite territory. This is my homeland. We can't have anybody that's for David in our homeland. And so he likely brings this force here to subdue Gibeon, which means if they've declared for David that David is forced to send his own delegation to defend them. So verse 13, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David, they went out and they met together with 
the army that Abner brought, by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the one on the other side of the pool. So, I mean, I guess they had a pool party. The word here for pool means a, a reservoir. Uh, the reservoir was a common meeting place in the community. Jeremiah 41 verse 12 says that the reservoir at Gibeon was massive. Um, in fact, if you go there today, there's a hundred foot wide reservoir still there, still in use. So they sat down. They was not to have a pool party, but they did sit down to talk. Because where do we go from here? We got two armies here, two Israeli armies, and that's never going to be good. So they sit down to talk. But it's going to become clear that both sides are itching for a fight. I love what David Guzik says about Abner and Joab. He says, Abner and Joab were each tough, mean military men who were completely devoted to their cause. When you talk about Abner and you talk about Joab, these are two individuals who are absolutely no nonsense, all right? These guys are like, if I got to fight, I'll fight. I don't care who you are, I'll kill you. It's just, that's their mindset. If you're in my way, you're in my way and you need to be moved out of my way. That is how they understand things. They see obstacle, go take out the obstacle. They are simple men, they, again, and they are, they are not nice guys. These are warriors. And so they, they, despite being close friends, there's no way this is going to end via a discussion. Abner made his intentions clear when he made Ishbosheth king. David cannot exist. And thus, Abner, as they're sitting here talking, knows they're not going to go anywhere, and he proposes a lesser solution to break the standstill. Instead of us fighting a major battle here, why don't we settle this dispute with a contest between a few soldiers? And Abner, verse 14, said to Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. I love the King James. I have no clue why you would translate that word play. There's nothing playful about this. The word here, play, just means a contest between two opponents, and it means a very serious and very deadly contest. The idea is we'll put a couple of our best soldiers against each other, and whoever's alive wins. If you guys win, we'll go home. If we win, you go home. That way, less people have to die. And so, when Joab hears this proposal, Joab says, let them get up and do it. You know, I mean, this is like a Hollywood moment, you know. You got, you, got, you know, uh, uh, Russell Crowe, you know, uh, Joab marching around going, let them arise, you know. And, you know, <laughs> Joseph, Michael, Bob, go fight. Probably not Bob, but neither commander is concerned that this is going to be deadly to their men because they're fully confident their men will be victorious. The result here, it's a bit confusing to read, but it's clearly a bloodbath. Verse 15, then there arose and went over by number 12 of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And they caught everyone his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side so that they fell down together. Wherefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is in Gibeon. Helkath Hazurim, it means field of daggers. This was going to be short range, brutal hand to hand combat. These weren't guys going to pick up the big swords. This is going to be knife work. This is going to be a small dagger and your hands. It was going to be a very close melee, very deadly. And so, What actually goes on here is difficult to understand because the original language here in Hebrew, it's very difficult to translate to English. For example, verse 16, when it says, and they caught everyone his fellow by the head, does the they refer to all 24 men or the last mention here, the 12 of the servants of David? I mean, is this just how they were taught to fight? And and, and Joab had kind of coached them up for this moment and they just, they come up, grabbed him by the head and stabbed him and just everybody's dead right away. I lean that way. However, the English makes it sound like everybody grabbed each other by the head and everybody stabbed each other in the stomach and everybody died at the same time like it was some gruesome play. That's the way the English reads here. So it is difficult to know for sure which of those situations it is. There is, of course, the possibility that these are just Hebrew idioms to describe violent battle. That is a possibility, that this was just brutal, violent, and raw. Whatever it's trying to describe, 
Either all 24 men die or all of Abner men die in the contest. And what is clear is that the violence that ensues here is so brutal that it gives this location a special name from here on out, Field of Daggers. This is, this is not a field where there's a nice pool that we can come get fresh water from. No, this is the place where there was knife work that went on. This was a deadly, violent place. And so rather than being a contest, it turns into this violent, brutal melee that instead of resolving the conflict, only ratchets it up to a higher level. And so verse 17 says, and there was very sore battle that day. This, they just didn't fight. This was emotional. This was, the word there, very sore, it means fierce, harsh, cruel. This was brutal. It was bitter. It was personal. Whatever had happened when they saw this little contest take place and the brutality of it, the emotions rose to a fever pitch and it just immediately erupted into a full-scale battle that was brutal. And it tells us that the results of the battle is that Abner was beaten. He was literally, it means he was routed. He was forced to call a retreat. And the men of Israel, his, his soldiers before the servants of David. Now, if we're looking at this conflict and how what happens right here at, at this field of daggers, truthfully, Joab's mission is complete, right? I mean, if Abner's on the run and his whole purpose was to go out and to defend Gibeon, Gibeon's safe, right? The battle should, it's over. His mission's complete. As I mentioned earlier, David never goes to take away land from Ishbosheth. David would only defend his allies. But Joab and his two brothers aren't the type to see things that way. They're different. They're blood, blood kin. They're kin of David, but they are not the same as David. In fact, David, on numerous occasions, he will, like, they'll be doing something and, and he'll find out what they did. And he's like, what am I going to do with you guys? <laughs> he says, what am I going to do with you sons of Zariah? I don't even want to call you my cousins right now. They were actually nephews, but because his uh, older sister was their mom, there was, they were probably more like cousins. And they frustrated David frequently. In fact, David fired Joab from the job of being his general three times. Three times. And every time, Joab won the job back. When they were taking Jerusalem, they, they ran into a problem because Jerusalem was near impregnable. In fact, the, the um, Jebusites who were up at the top of Jerusalem, and please don't be offended by this comment, it's not mine, it was their comment. They said, we could have our crippled people up here defend this place against you guys. That's how defensible the place was. There was only one way in. If you've been to Israel, you've seen it. It was a, a, a well that led to a cave that went up into the city. And it's about as skinny as that keyboard right there. How do you get through that? You don't, unless your name's Joab. And so David had fired Joab a few months earlier. And so David calls out, he goes, well, whoever gets to the top there, you'll be the new general. And Joab's like, watch this. Joab frustrated David so much that when he made Solomon king, he said, don't let that guy's gray head go to the grave in peace. He will eat you up. You can't, you gotta keep an eye on him. They, all these brothers, they loved to fight. And in addition to that, they were fiercely loyal to David. It's a good thing. Went too far with it, but it was a good thing. And so their thought is, if we can take out Abner, the real power behind the throne, well, we can end this civil war before it truly gets started. And so verse 18, instead of just letting them flee, it says, and there were three sons of Zeriah there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as light of foot as a wild roe. Um, it means like a gazelle in the open field. If you ever look at uh, video footage of a gazelle in the open field, they're pretty quick. And so that's the idea. This guy's fast. 
And so it tells us here in verse 19, and Asahel pursued after Abner, and in his going, his chasing, he did not turn to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. In other words, he's not just following a fleeing opponent. It's not like he's just chasing after their army and it just happens that Abner's the guy he's chasing. No, he's targeting Abner. He's, you know, there are other guys that might be easier guys to pick off going this way or that way, and he's like, nope, I got tunnel vision on this guy. I'm taking down Abner. He was hunting Abner, and when Abner noticed somebody was hunting him, he was a bit shocked. Verse 20, then Abner looked behind him because he's hearing somebody chasing him, and he's like, are you Asahel? And he knows who he is, and he said, <laughs> he said, I am. And Abner said unto him, turn thee aside to the right hand or the left hand and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor. If you want to make a name for yourself, when, you know, the idea is you come back with battle armor and I defeated this guy, I took his armor, look at what I did. If you're looking for glory on the battlefield, buddy, go chase somebody else. But Asahel wasn't deterred. He wanted the highest prize in the day. And so it says he did not turn to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. He was not deterred. He would not turn aside from following him, verse 21. Verse 22, Abner, then he says to him again, he says, turn you aside from following me, for why should I smite you to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab, your brother? Interesting. Turn aside. Go, go chase somebody else. Why should I kill you? In other words, to what end, to what purpose would it be for me to kill you? And then if I did, how would I face your brother? Interesting, we have no record of Joab's life prior to David being on the run. So we don't know what Joab did when David was in the army, when David was a commander, a high-ranking commander in Saul's army. But given that David's older brothers were both in the army, or all, older, his older ones were all in the army, it's highly likely that Joab became someone of importance when David became one of Saul's commanders. It's even possible that Joab and Abner had some kind of relationship, whether it was professional or personal. Whatever their relationship had been, though, Abner is thinking, he's a soldier and he's a politician, and he didn't want to serve David, he didn't want to give up his position in Israeli society, but nothing about this battle against David was personal. He didn't have a grudge against David, he just didn't want to lose. And so killing David's kin, targeting David's kin, which is what this would look like if he kills this guy, it served no purpose in his political mind. And therefore, it would only complicate his goals. But even though he says this, Asahel does not back off, which forces Abner to fight. Verse 23, albeit he refused to turn aside. Wherefore, Abner with the hinder end of his spear smote him under the fifth rib so that the spear came out behind him. And he, Asahel, fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died stood still. Spears back then sometimes had a sharpened butt. Sometimes it was rounded and just, you know, it was flat at, at the bottom. But sometimes it actually had a pointy end. Uh, the guys who carried that, it was usually because they liked to, if they needed to take a stand, they could stick it into the ground and it served more as like a, like a pole arm a little bit better. That way it'd be like having a like a lance or something that if you were getting charged by cavalry or something like that. Apparently, Abner's carrying one of these types of spears. And so Asahel was chasing so hard that when Abner, he, all, as he's running, all of a sudden he's, he just stops, plants his feet, and doesn't even turn. He just goes, shunk. And as Asahel's running, he runs right into it, not expecting the attack at all. And it goes right up under the bottom of his ribs, right through the chest and out the back. That's how hard he slammed into this thing. And he fell down and he died. Asahel may have been quicker, but Abner was one of the best warriors in Israel, and so it ended just like Abner said it would. And because heroes like Asahel aren't expected to die like that, especially not to a fellow Israeli, when the other soldiers caught up and saw his body, they were kind of jolted by this and they stopped the chase. Everyone except Asahel's brothers. Look at verse 24. Joab and also and Abishai pursued after Abner. They kept going even though the sun went down. And the sun went down when they were come to the hill of Amma that lies in front of Gia by the way of the forest of Gibeon. 
And the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on the top of the hill. Uh, This shows us that this was not a disorganized retreat. This wasn't a bunch of screaming men running for their lives. Abner had ordered a controlled retreat for the purpose of disengaging. And so Abner's focus is we need to find a place to defend ourselves. And so he leads them to this hill, a much more defensible position with the high ground, and he stops his retreat and he prepares to make a better showing with the advantageous position. And yet, even with the better ground, Abner knows whoever wins this fight loses in the end because a lot of Israelis are going to die in the process. And so in verse 26, Abner called out to Joab and said, should the sword devour forever? I mean, is this to the last man? Is that how we're doing this? Do you not know that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then ere you bid the people return from following their brothers? Abner's mind is this. Okay, we lose this battle. But I've got seven or eight tribes backing my candidate. He really thought that David would eventually capitulate. He'd eventually acquiesce and then the nation would need to be reunified. So you don't want to create any bad blood more than exists already. But Asahel's chasing of him turned this into something that could create deep divides in the nation with Israelis chasing other Israelis like hunted animals. So Abner calls out Joab for making this conflict more than it should be. Now Joab, as the one who came to defend the Gibeonites, sees the situation quite differently. And thus we get a clue here as to why Asahel had pursued Abner so hard. Verse 27, and Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up, everyone from following his brother. So Joab blew a trumpet and all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither did they fight anymore. As God lives, <laughs> don't, don't put this on me, buddy. We know the reality. As God lives, is let me tell you the truth here. As God lives, which is the truth, it's the highest truth there is, that God is alive and real. Don't twist the truth and put the blame on this and me. We didn't start this. Unless you had not spoken. In other words, you're the one who suggested a challenge of single combat. You're the one who put this in a place where it got nasty. Joab holds Abner responsible for this because he was the one who invaded a city loyal to David. If they had just talked us through at the pool, everyone could have gone home alive. Don't put the blame on me. And then to prove his point, Joab says, I'll call off the chase. Joab is one of the most interesting people in the Bible. Joab is not a godly man by any means, which is, by the way, anyone like Joab who actually comes up to you and tells you, I don't think this is the Lord's will, you should listen. Because when he's being spiritual, it means things are bad. There are a couple times he comes to David and he's like, David, this is a bad idea. And you're like, Joab's telling me this is a bad idea? That should have got your attention, David. He's not a godly man. But Joab is a genuine person and he has no interest in politics. And while his decisions aren't always righteous, he always calls things exactly as he sees them. And this is what Abner underestimated about David and his men. You see, to Abner... This was political. This was about position. Every move was a calculated decision to boost his position. And that kind of mindset will always cloud your judgment. But for David, none of this was political. David wanted to fulfill his calling from God and wanted to serve his people, to be a real king. And his men wanted to help him do that. And they were fiercely loyal to David's heart. And thus, Abner can make all the accusation he wants, but the reality is this entire tragedy is laid at his feet because Abner doesn't have a heart for the people. He has a heart for himself, and that's what makes Abner a man who isn't after God's heart and therefore not worthy to be king. Well, verse 29, so Abner and his men They walked all that night through the plain, and they passed over Jordan, went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from following Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants just 20 men, 19 men and his brother Asahel. But the servants of David had smitten of Benjamin and of Abner's men, so that 360 men died. That's a very lopsided victory. 360 to 20, huge lopsided victory. And you know, when you 
add up those kinds of losses, Abner would have needed at least 30 tribes loyal to him to overcome David. And the truth is, 30 tribes don't exist. As we're going to see when we begin chapter 3, Abner is fighting a losing battle from the start. And yet by continuing it, he does exactly what he accuses Joab of doing. He creates a rift in the nation that will last for all time. One that will cause the nation to break into two nations just 75 years from now. Verse 32, and so they took up Asahel and buried him in the sepulcher of his father, which was in Bethlehem, David's family's hometown. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at the break of day. You know, when we look at this chapter, as we close this out, we see that David at the beginning is seeking God's will, and Abner's pursuing his own will. And whenever you have two people in the same proximity, and one's pursuing God's will and the other one's pursuing their own will, you're going to have unnecessary conflict. That's why in Romans chapter 12, we read it in our scripture, and it says, as much as lies within you, pursue peace with all men. That's our goal. We're not to be the ones who are trying, looking for the conflict or trying to bring about conflict. Our goal is to try to pursue peace with all men as much as lies in us, all right? I can't control the other person, but I can control me. And so the Lord says through Paul, he says, do not be overcome by evil. See, well, they're doing this and this and this. Yeah, that's fine. Don't let evil defeat you. Instead, you overcome evil with good. Instead, do what Hebrews 12, 14 says. Hebrews 12, 14 urges us. It says this, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Let's be those who pursue peace, not those who create civil wars in our sphere of influence. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, it would have been very easy for David to be angry and to think, here we go again, and to lash out. But Lord, we don't see him do that. Lord, in, in this, he is very much like you. He does not render evil for evil. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live out what Romans 12 says. Lord, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to not be high-minded but condescend to men of low estate. Lord, to be around those who have a humble heart. And then, Lord, when we are wrong, to not repay evil for evil. In fact, we're to not take vengeance, Lord. We commit to you right now that we're going to let, Lord, (laughs) vengeance pass by us. Let all that desire for retribution to pass by us, and instead, we will trust you to bring justice. And so, Lord, we commit to you tonight to be those who will do good to our enemies, to not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Lord, we can't do that on our own, so please fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might live this commandment out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.